If I'm being completely honest, I despise the word success. I've always had a very challenging relationship with it, and part of it is because the ideas or the standards that I've set for myself are so high that it's very rare that I allow myself to feel successful in anything that I do. Of course, there are moments of recognition. There are moments of being proud of yourself. There are moments even of feeling joy or happy for what you have accomplished. But success has been defined as something so unattainable. It has been defined as something so grand that only an elite few are able to actually have it. And inherently, is the idea of success a goal or is success the journey? How we define success ultimately is a personal choice. And yet, we are born and we are built to believe that success looks and feels one way. Today on the Fahrenheit Podcast, we are diving into the idea of success with my dear friend, Alex Banian. Alex is the national and international bestseller of the book, The Third Door. It is a wild quest that he went on to uncover how the world's most successful people launched their careers and ultimately how they do or don't feel successful. From Steven Spielberg to Lady Gaga to Bill Gates to Wozniak, Alex literally banked down the third door in order to be able to meet and have conversations with these incredible people. The people who for us in our world are defined as the ones who are successful. From hacking Warren Buffett's shareholders meeting to chasing Larry King through a grocery store to celebrating in a nightclub with Lady Gaga, which took him over three years to get, Alex travels from icon to icon decoding their success. And what's most interesting about this incredible journey that he went on and all of the information that he gathered from Tim Ferriss and Quincy Jones and Jessica Alba and more was that they all took the third door and that what was inherent to their success is so fundamental to human nature and the universal beliefs that all of us can lean into. So I had been on this sort of like journey to CMO, was climbing the ladder, doing the thing, and just really was not feeling happy or successful, even though on paper I was getting everything that I really wanted. So I left to embark on the beginning of the journey towards Fahrenheit. And I ended up deciding that I was going to launch a startup with two co-founders. And about nine months in realized I was like the same thing, different strokes, I was not rooted in my authenticity. I was not really going towards being happy or successful. I thought maybe successful, but I was not going to be successful because the path that I was on was really not right for me. I was living somebody else's life. And I ended up quitting my pre-launch startup after we had raised money. And I felt like a failure. Why do you think you felt like a failure? Just because the project didn't work out or? No, I think for me, my career was always an area of my life that I was confident in. Other areas of my life hadn't, still haven't figured them out. But like my work was an area for me where like. That's yeah, where fair is put know, together. Like that's, that's where I'm put together. That's where I have my shit together. And so when I raised all this money and I went to Summit Tulum and I was out in the world as this new entrepreneur, and then I decided to quit, I felt like I had failed at being a founder. It was totally by my own metric of what failure or success look like. But in the ashes or the rubble of that failed startup, I sort of had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And I, I felt a little bit like the world had seen me naked. I had in my mind failed, which allowed me to be egoless in my approach to figuring out what came next and what came next was Fahrenheit. In an ironic twist and turn of events, I ended up becoming a founder of a business that I'm 
deeply passionate about that is totally rooted in what I want to give to the world, what I want to share, what I want to create. And I would never have had the courage to do that had I not in my mind failed at the first stab. And what was the genesis of the idea for Fahrenheit? The genesis of the idea for Fahrenheit was that I started actually just listening. I started listening to what a lot of VCs and early stage founders were saying that they were lacking, which inherently was sort of a hybrid between like raising enough capital to have a fully baked brand marketing team or leveraging a creative agency that might be extraordinary at creative, but not really get the operational complexities of what it means to build an actual team and brand in the early days. So I really just started helping founders. That's totally how it started. And within, I think, the first six weeks of me like being out in the world, helping a couple of founders, two founders turned to four, turned to eight. And I was like, I need a bigger boat. And that's really what happened. It wasn't until probably six months into Fahrenheit that I was like, oh, my goodness, this is a business. I need to actually get a legal document or two together and make this a real thing. So in the weirdest of ways, there were so many answers I was seeking so many questions I was asking myself. And a lot of my framework for success was comparing myself to others. Because that's what we're taught to do. And that's what they weirdly encourage implicitly. Yeah. I guess I would ask you, inherent in the story that I just told is a definition of success. And this is a topic that you, of course, are no stranger to. So I would start by saying, how do you even define success? My instinct is to answer with, and I can do both. The best answer I've gotten from that is from Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple. But you asked me how I define success. I'm going to try to not use the cop out of giving Woz. And I, we can do both. Woz <laughs> you can do both. Me. Let's do both. Let's get wild. <laughs> Let's get wild. Let's get okay, wild. Fine. Okay. This is what I'll do. I'll start with Woz because I think it creates a good framework. And then I can uh, go into my own. I interviewed Steve Wozniak about... along the seven-year journey of the third door. I just finished interviewing Bill Gates. I'm feeling really good. And the Wozniak interview like came together somewhat seamlessly. Like the other interviews took, you know, two years, three years to get together. The Wozniak one happened over an email introduction. I was like, this never happens. This is amazing. You know, I fly up to Cupertino to go for this interview, Steve Wozniak. And he says to meet him at this restaurant. It's a Chinese restaurant a few blocks from Apple headquarters. Of course, I show up 15 minutes early. I'm standing outside the restaurant and my phone rings. Hey, look at it. It's my, one of my best friends. His name is Ryan. And I'm just like, dude, I'm, yeah, I'm telling him, I'm here. I'm about to interview Waz. Like, I'm so pumped. Yeah. My friend Ryan, he's like, he's a really smart guy. He's like, Waz? Really? And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, look, he's, it's not that he's not successful, but like, you know, he's definitely not the same as Steve Jobs and, or Bill Gates. And he's like, look at, you know, look at the Forbes list. You know, Waz isn't even on it. And and before I could respond, my friend Ryan goes, do you know what? Maybe it's a good thing you're interviewing him. Try to find out why Waz was never as successful as Steve Jobs. Ooh. Before I could think of a response, I look up and I see Waz walking toward me. So I say bye to my friend. I hang up. We shake hands and we go into this restaurant and it's, you know, the sea of white tablecloths. We sit down, you know, I reach for the menu, but Waz, you know, motions for me to put it down and he orders for the both of us. And before I know it, you know, the table is overflowing with chow mein and orange chicken and honey walnut prawns and egg rolls. And we just started having this incredible time. And it very quickly hit me. It wasn't hard to realize this is one of the happiest guys I've ever sat down with for an interview for the book. And he's just telling me how him and Steve Jobs first met. They actually bonded over pranks. And I love pranks. So Waz is telling me all the pranks he used to pull. 
And within the first 30 minutes, it doesn't matter if he was talking about his wife or his dogs or his road trip he was about to take the next day. He just had this enthusiasm that I hadn't seen in other interviews before. And about halfway through the interview, uh, this woman walks over to the table and Waz introduces me to his wife, Janet. She sits down and Wozniak explains to her who I am. And he you know, tells her, you know, Alex is interviewing the world's most successful people for this book. And then he turns to me and sort of like lowers his voice. And he's like, you know, I don't know why you're talking to me. You know, I'm no mogul like Steve Jobs or anything like that. And he sort of just like let his, like, just let it trail as if he was like dating me for a response. It's like he was testing me. And I, I didn't know what to say. So I did the only thing I could think of. I just like stuffed an egg roll in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked because, you know, it worked because when I was like chewing, he decided to keep talking. And he goes, like, when I was younger, I decided that I, was going to not do what other people expected me to do. And I decided that I was going to create my own definition of success, which for me was create things with my bare hands using engineering that changes the world. Number two, have fun along the way. And I said, is that why you're so happy? Because you do what you want every day. And his wife goes, oh, trust me, he does exactly what he wants every day. So, you know, we're joking and we're laughing. And, you know, the lunch is, you know, about halfway quarter through and, the thing my friend Ryan said just like was stuck in my head. Sometimes someone says something and it just like keeps clawing at you. I'm waiting um, for the cliffhanger. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, so I'm like, let me dig a little. This is an interview. So I started asking Wozniak about what it was like when him and Steve Jobs first started Apple. And Wozniak tells me a handful of stories. And there's three that really showed me the difference between the two people. First story takes place before Apple even got started. Steve Jobs was working at Atari, the video game company, and he was assigned to program this video game, but he knew that his buddy Woz was a way better engineer. So he tells Woz, look, I'm getting paid 750 bucks for this. If you code the game, I'll give you half the money. And Woz goes, that's so fair. This is so cool. I love Atari. I'm in. Wozniak hits out of the park, does the whole thing in a weekend. It's a huge success. Jobs gives him half of $750. Decades later, it comes out in a memoir from the CEO of Atari that he never paid Steve Jobs $750. He paid him thousands of dollars for the video game. Mm. Steve Jobs denied it. The CEO says it's true. But that was, you know, the first story. Then the second story takes place right when Apple is really hitting it big in the early days. And it was very clear that Steve Jobs would be the CEO, but it wasn't so clear where Wozniak would be on the executive team. Similar to what we were talking about before, your whole CMO crisis of like, you know, everyone thinks, you know, what position am I going to have on the executive team? Yeah. And Steve Jobs asked Wozniak, you know, do you want to be chief technology officer? Do you want to be, see, what, what do you want to do? And Wozniak said, I want my position capped at engineer. Jobs was like, what are you talking about? And Wozniak said, look, when I was young, I decided I wanted to build things with my hands. I wanted to have fun. And being a chief executive, you don't build anything and you're dealing with the company politics all day. Yeah. No, thanks. And it's great. It's sort of like the complete opposite of the current ethos of Silicon Valley in the business world right now. And then the third story takes place right around the time of Apple's IPO. You know, Jobs and Wozniak were set to make more money than they've ever imagined in their life. Mm-hmm. And some of the earliest Apple employees went to Wozniak right before the IPO. And they said, look, this is uncomfortable to talk about, but Jobs won't give us any stock options. And Wozniak said, that makes no sense. You guys pretty much started the company with us let me talk to Steve. I'll figure this out. It's probably a miscommunication. And Wozniak talks to Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs essentially slams the door in his face and says, not a discussion. So Wozniak did the only thing he could think of. 
He gave some of his personal shares to all the early employees. And on the day the company IPO'd, all those early employees became millionaires. Wow. Sitting there at this... Feast of a meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, you know, the, the meal is, you know, wrapping up and I'm looking at Wozniak and he's like laughing and leaning back in his chair and cracking open a fortune cookie. And again, the question my friend Ryan asked me came into my head. But all I could think was, who's to say Steve Jobs was more successful? And that story, that interview completely changed my understanding of the definition of success. Because what Steve Wozniak shows is it's not until you actually stop and think for yourself and make your own definition consciously that you're just going to be the default of society is to follow someone else's definition. Whether it's your immigrant parents or whether it's for magazines or CNBCs or whatever, whatever your culture is. So that was, you know, a big lesson there. It sounds like you definitely had that experience when you're starting Fahrenheit. And I've very much had to, you know, think of it myself the past few years too. So have you defined that filter or that definition for yourself? Yes. It might be an interesting exercise to like sit down and put in as clear words as Wozniak. But to me, I've like sort of had to think of what's my definition of success. And on the one hand, it's like, I want to contribute in a way that's very uh, unique to what I have to give to the world. I want to, you know, have fun and enjoy it. I want to be proud of myself. You know, Maya Angelou has a great quote saying like success is loving what you do, loving how you do it and loving the way you did it. Might be botching the words a little bit. And I also think at the end of the day, the literal definition of the word success is achieving your goals. So I think it's about having really clear goals for the third door. I had a really clear vision and for the most part, it came true. So I feel like really good about that. And I'm right now, I'm in a phase of like the next chapter of my life. And I'm actually in the part where I'm setting up those goals, both personally and professionally. So the journey has been really fun, but I'm very much in a exploration phase now, just as it was when I was starting the third door 10 years ago. It's interesting because I think we think about successful people or society trains us maybe to look at very successful people and assume they are confident, they are clear. There's a lot of ego involved with being successful, with success. And in fact, if you're defining your own definition of success, you actually have to eradicate a lot of, I think, the egocentric ideas of what success is. To Wozniak, right, if he had been really driven by ego or what society tells him is going to be success, he would want the CTO role. But it's actually very humbling to say, I know what makes me happy. I know what will make me feel successful. And I'm good with the engineer job. I want to stay right there. For me, it was a recognition that I was surrounded in the early days of sort of the startup culture in New York, surrounded by a lot of my colleagues and friends becoming billionaire founders. And in many ways, when I look back at the startup that I was working on, I think it was in my mind, the shortest path towards being a founder of a billion dollar company. And from the category that I chose to the two male co-founders I was working with, everything about it was driven by ego. I want to be able to put my name and say, I did that. And versus actually, was I enjoying the day-to-day of it? Was it rooted in what I wanted to do? No. And I talk about this on the first episode of the Fahrenheit podcast, but it was a very humbling experience for me to be like, I'm okay with having a $5 million company or a $10 million company. I don't know that I need to go out into the world and prove to everybody 
that I need to be a founder of a billion dollar company? And also, when did it become a bad thing? When did we get to a place in society where the goals or the barrier to entry for success is so high? Yes. The key word is our society, our bubble, our ecosystem, because even there's parts of America where that's not necessarily the culture. And there's a lot of parts of the world. One of the things that opened my mind a lot was after I did the U.S. book tour, we did an international book tour for the third door. And I literally took the same book with the same message to different cultures. And, you know, when you open up to audience Q&A, you really get a pulse for what the energy of that ecosystem is. China, all the questions are, how do we get more customers? How do we have high growth, exponential growth? And in Italy, they said, is it so bad if I vacation half the year? Like, you know, the questions were different. I love that. Obviously, I'm making it very two-dimensional. But what's cool is there were very different questions in very different countries. And it just makes it very clear how much, you know, there's that famous anecdote that one fish is swimming and the other fish comes up to it and it says, how's the water today? And the other fish says, what's water? Just if you're born into something and it's been around your whole life, you don't see it. And I think defining success, if you're born in New York City in the Upper West Side, it takes some kind of moment of awareness to realize, oh, this is not real. All of this was created by other people. Well, you had that moment. So maybe talk a little bit about what that moment of transformation was for you when you decided I might be on the wrong path. And I think that there's a different one out there for me. You know, it's interesting. I just said a minute ago that there's a singular moment. The way I sort of see the world is like, it's easy in a story to say there was this one moment where everything changed. But I think the reality of how life works is it's all these little whispers. And then in a moment, you might make a choice. Or take an action, right? Which when you're telling a story, it's better to just focus on the choice. But the reality is there's whispers. And for me, I remember the whispers. I remember being an 18-year-old freshman in college and sitting there in my dorm room bed, staring over the ceiling. I was a pre-med. I was not just a pre-med. I had thought I would be a doctor since I was five years old. Groomed for it. Yeah. You know, I sort of like came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms and stamped MD on my behind and sent me on my way. And, you know, my family are Persian Jewish immigrants. That was, you know, I wore medical scrubs to school for Halloween in third grade. I went to pre-med summer camp in high school. Like I was in it because when you're a kid, you know, I didn't have any awareness of this. If you're clever, you really know what makes mom and grandma and grandpa smile and what makes them scorn. And it's the implicit messages that have the strongest hold in our thinking. So, you know, I get to college. I think my life dream is to be a doctor. But all I know is that I'm staring up at the ceiling and I'm looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they're sucking the life out of me. And that's when the whispers begin. And again, it's only clear in hindsight, but that's when the whispers begin. And I can just, it's almost like a movie montage when I think back to it. I can remember sitting in the biology classes like freshman year of college. And these other kids are like ferociously taking notes. And I'm like under my desk, like reading the four-hour work week. Like in hindsight, it's so obvious. But when you're in it, I'm sure people listening to this are like doing their Zoom company meetings or like going to the office. But like actually they're on Instagram looking at interior design influencers they love. Like maybe you're not meant to be an accountant. I don't know. It's the fog that's tricky. So that was really when it started. And what I do know is before I even you know, left pre-med or left college, there was a moment where I started wondering, maybe I'm not on my path. 
Maybe I'm on a path somebody's placed me on and I'm just rolling down. And the second that thought enters your head, you have a choice. Just like every inconvenient truth, which is you can silence it with overeating, drinking, overworking, overworking, over planning, over partying, you know, whatever your handle that you're pulling, or you can look at it. Mm-hmm. I have this belief that most people have the thought, whatever the thought is, when they're not in alignment with their soul, their purpose. The question is, do you have the courage to let the thought stay? Or are you going to be so afraid of it? And by the way, the reason we're afraid, I think about this a lot, the reason we're afraid of it almost always is because of the fear of the implications of what it would mean. Absolutely. My marriage will fall apart if I even think about this. My job is in jeopardy if I even wonder if this is true. Will my family love me? And again, these aren't conscious thoughts, but the subconscious works in crazy ways. It's both the things we might have to lose or let go of, the things we have to change, or the things we will actually have to go do. <laughs> right. And God forbid in the things we have to go do, we might fail. It's the courage. It's also the will. I did unleash the power within, which honestly was like the most fun I've ever had. Doing work on myself while dancing for 10 hours straight is like the ultimate combination of bliss. You know, like I was like, bring it on. And the number one thing I took away from it, we all have the thoughts. We all have the beliefs. We all have the doubts. We all have the ideas. Courage is one piece of it, but it's then the will to actually go do it. And the actually going and doing it is interesting because I think often we think that we need a lot to accomplish something when in fact, it's just the day one getting started. I'm gonna use you as an example. You are not an author. You didn't go to school for this. You weren't born into a family of poet laureates. Like you just one day (laughs) started. And I think for me at Fahrenheit, I always thought entrepreneurs or founders had these things, these skills, these experience, the relationships, the connections, the education that I didn't have. And then literally one day I just like, because I had nothing to lose and in my mind I had failed and I was like, screw it. What do I have to lose at this point? I just started. I had the will to take the action to begin, which inherently is, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions and also the biggest challenges of what it takes to actually just go. Yeah, I remember being 19 years old and seeing this quote that said, It was from uh, an author named Mike Dooley. And he said, the one thing every great author, musician, politician, and celebrity has in common is they all started when they were none of those things. Yep. And I was like, it's true. (laughs) A part of me like like, jokes about how, and I actually like can read my journals from when I was like 18 and 19. There's like journal entries where I'm writing like, I don't know if this plan will work, but... (laughs) If it doesn't, at least I'll know like all this self-help bullshit is false. Like mm-hmm. there was a part of me that was like, because in my family, there was no one who had, you know, quote unquote, followed a dream and for fair reasons, you know, and my parents and grandparents explicitly told me, you know, they didn't mince words, you will be homeless. Yeah. You, you know, they, yeah, you know, they made it very clear that the path I was choosing was a path of, you know, misery and, <laughs> and shame. Yes. Misery and um, shame having cup of noodles for dinner. Yeah, if you're lucky. So 
this was an experiment. And yeah, I definitely learned uh, how the world works to a degree. For those who haven't read your book, let's talk a little bit about what the third door means and what you uncovered in your journey towards understanding what made successful people successful. You know, I went on this 10-year journey studying success. And, you know, when I had started in the beginning, you know, there was no part of me looking for that, you know, one key to success. We've all seen those TED Talks or those business books. And normally, I just roll my eyes. But what ended up happening over all these years of interviews, like I said, for business, I spoke to Bill Gates, for music, Lady Gaga, science, Jane Goodall, poetry, Maya Angelou, Steve Wozniak, Larry King, Quincy Jones. It's been, you know, this pretty remarkable journey of lessons. And by the end, I realized that every single one of these people, it didn't matter what industry they were in. It didn't matter if it was Maya Angelou who grew up in Stamps, Arkansas, or Warren Buffett who grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. Every single one of them treated life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me was that it's almost like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get it. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. For some reason, society has this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it, or you wait your turn out on this cold sidewalk. Mm -hmm. But what I've learned, and what I'm sure you know very well in your own career, is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. And I, I was thinking about even when you were just talking a few minutes ago, one of the more surprising realizations I had in this journey of just studying the paths of all these people and doing all these interviews was realizing and nat my natural assumption is the hardest part to achieving a big dream was having the resources, having the, mm -hmm. the connections, the, you know, cause I didn't have any of those things when I was starting. But when I looked at not only my own journey, but like all of the journeys of the people I studied and interviewed, I realized, and again, going back to traveling the world and doing all these Q and A's with, you know, thousands and thousands of people in all these countries, I've sort of walked away with this, to me, a, a surprising realization that the hardest part of achieving a dream is not running down the alley, banging on the door. Most people you would be surprised have more ability than they're aware of when their back is against the wall. The number one reason most people don't achieve their dream is because they're afraid to leave the line for the first door. And it makes complete sense. That's where there's street lights. It's well lit. The <laughs> sidewalk is paved. All your friends are in the line. You literally went to school and they only taught you how to be in the line. Your family is proud of you for being so far <laughs> up in that line. And by the way, also that line is, if you're lucky, how you have food and a roof over your head. There's a lot of good things about it too. You're actually fighting a lot of natural human instincts to leave the line for the first door. Hmm. But if there is one thing I've seen over and over and over again is if you want to achieve a dream, if you want to accomplish something new that you've never done before, something big that stirs your soul, the only way is through the third door. I talk about this often on the Fahrenheit podcast, but 
I'm not someone that things come naturally for. Like I've always had to work hard for anything I wanted. And a great example that I love to give is my twin sister was like naturally brilliant. She would study for maybe an hour for every test. She'd ace the test. It was never a struggle. It was never a challenge. She never suffered. <laughs> like, you know, I was up for three days straight, barely sleeping with like highlighters and pens and note cards and prep to like maybe get that A minus. And at a very young age, this idea of hard work, of clawing my way through the window was just really built into who I was. When I first read The Third Door, at this point a few years ago, one of the things that I thought about was getting into NYU. When I was 13 years old, I went to New York. I saw the waving purple flag of NYU in their campus, which is basically Washington Square Park. And I looked at my parents and I was like, I'm going to school here. No debate. This is where I'm going to school. And I went back and lived my life in Miami. And from ninth grade, every conversation that I ever had with the teacher was built around I'm going to NYU. Like if a teacher gave me a bad grade, I would tell him it will be him or her that it would be their fault if I didn't get into NYU <laughs> because of this grade. When I was in the time when I was actually applying for college, the college advisor in my school told me I had no chance of getting in. They love to do that. Love to do that. And I was <laughs> like heartbroken. And yeah. I had every extracurricular. I had as good of an SAT score as I was going to get. I was a very good student and it still didn't feel like enough. And I clawed my way in. I went to NYU admissions. I banged down the door. I forced them to let me have interviews with people, even if it wasn't going to like impact the admissions. It just felt good. I ended up going into Tisch School of the Arts. So I had to audition. I wrote on every college application that my number for every other school that NYU was my number one choice. And it was funny because I ended up getting into some of those schools that I told them they weren't my first choice for. But in the end, I got into NYU. And it was just another reminder that there is always another way in. What I love about the idea in your book is that where there's a will, there's a way. It is not about who you are or where you come from or, quite frankly, the skills that you have. If you want it bad enough, you can go out and get it and figure out and carve a space for yourself. Which ironically, when I was thinking through this, is what you were already doing in writing The Third Door. Was there a moment of this seven-year journey of writing your book where you realized I'm the one currently walking through The Third Door? Yeah, there, is, there are definitely like <laughs> moments where I'm like, this is very meta. Like, yeah, I'm, like <laughs> I'm trying to chase Bill Gates so I can ask him how he chased his first clients. And then I'm writing a book about yeah. <laughs> how I that <laughs> yeah there's definitely been moments where I'm like this has been better but no I wasn't the first one to realize it I had a very uh a very wise editor by the name of Rick Horgan at my publishing house who because in the beginning the original idea for this book was wow it's actually so funny that I think about this because mm. it's very parallel to things I'm working on right now <laughs> the seed of the idea was always right the format was wrong. And actually, Jeff Bezos has this great quote that says, you know, great leaders are flexible, but have a deep keel. Essentially, you know, the vision it, and he just wrote this in a shareholder's letter, we are uncompromising with our vision and flexible on the details. A hundred percent. So with the third door, I knew what my mission was. I was on this mission to help try to inspire a generation to believe in what's possible. I was going to do that by interviewing the people who I looked up to the most and taking their wisdom and passing it along. I knew that that was the vision. But the original idea of the format was I would do all these interviews and sort of edit them out in sort of like Q&A format. 
So it felt like people were in a conversation. So that was like the original idea I pitched to the publisher that got the deal. But thankfully, Mm -hmm. I ended up having a very wise editor who one day called me in, you know, 19. Now, my writing experience is like writing one-on-one in college. (laughs) He like, you know, you know, he calls me into his office in New York and he's like, this is like a year into working on the third door. And he's like, so tell me, you know, what's the ultimate goal of your book? Which is a very worrisome thing to hear yeah, when you're yeah. a year in. Yeah. It's like your VC calling in, like, what's the point of the company a year after they invest it? You know, you're like, uh oh, where's this going? I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, is your goal to like give people information or is your goal to change people's lives? And I was like, well, that's clearly a leading question. <laughs> yeah. <My goal. laughs> Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Yeah. My goal is to change people's lives. And he's like, well, the book you're currently writing is not going to do that. Mm. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, how many magazine Q&As have you read that changed your life? And I'm like, I don't know, probably none. He's like, how many stories have you read that changed your life? And I'm like, okay, I get it. And he essentially, it doesn't matter if it's Harry Potter or Star Wars or the Wizard of Oz, you know, the stories that capture people's hearts are when there's a character that goes on this journey and learns along the way. And of course, I was so thick-headed. I was like, all right, I get it. Give me a week. I'll brainstorm. I don't know if it's Bill Gates or Spielberg, but I'll pick one of them to be the main character. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> no. Miss the point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it took me a while because I genuinely didn't understand why anybody would want to read it from my perspective. But the reality is mm-hmm. they're not reading it from my perspective. They're actually reading it. The audience is reading it from their perspective. Essentially, what I had to come to realize is that I was a conduit for the reader. And my struggles... And my lack of experience and my curiosity was the reader's curiosity. You're the alchemist. Yeah. And it just, I sort of had to realize that I was a vessel for the audience. And once I came to realize that, then the actual book that you read started to come to life. But I thought the hard part of this journey would be interviewing Bill Gates. It's still hard for me to admit this, but that was the easier part compared to the actual writing of the journey. For someone out there who's on the beginning of a journey or maybe has a whisper that they're trying to listen to, what are some technical pieces of advice that you could give? As one person who's left the I shoulds behind and forged their own path, in your book, we read a lot about what others did, but I'd love to hear a little bit about you and what you learned and any wisdom you would impart on someone that is in the beginning of their own journey. For anyone who is in that stage, and again, it's not an age, it's really a stage where you can feel something inside of you questioning your path or questioning your next chapter. It's like me every day. (laughs) Yeah, you can be 65, you can be 25. If you're in that stage where you're wanting a tool to help you find your path, your next chapter, this is something very simple you can do starting today to help find that direction. And it's called the 30-day challenge. It's called the 30-day challenge. And this is what you do. It's very simple. First step is go to like a supply, a stationery store or a pharmacy and get a, you know, a $1 notebook. And it's very important. You get a brand new notebook. Do not write this on a piece of scrap paper because your brain knows the difference between, you know, the note section of your iPhone and a brand new notebook. You know, if you respect the process, the process will respect you. So that's the first step. Get a new notebook. Second step is on the cover, write 30-day challenge. So that notebook is, it's almost wholly 
It is solely for this purpose. The next step is to open up your calendar and find a 15 minute window that you can carve out for the next 30 days in a row. And it can be after work, it can be right after dinner, it can be right before bed, but you want the same time every day so it becomes a ritual for the next 30 days. And it's just 15 minutes, but you really want something that you can 100% commit to. 15 minutes every day for 30 days. So once you put that in your calendar, this is what you're gonna do. Day one, you open up to a new page in the journal and you answer the same three questions every day for 30 days. And these are the three questions, ready? Number one is what filled me with enthusiasm today? Mm. What filled me with enthusiasm today? The question is not, what was my best part of my day or what was the most fun thing? I No, the question is what filled me with enthusiasm? That's the first question. Second question is what drained me of energy today? Question is not what did my boss say that pissed me off? What did my husband say that <laughs> pissed me off? The question is what drained me of energy today? Final question is what did I learn about myself today? Mm. What did I learn about myself today? And this is what's going to happen. I'm going to spoil the exercise for you. I'm going to tell you what it's going to, what's going to happen. The we first week you do this, you're going to be like, this is fucking awesome. I'm finding my path. You're going to be like, fire it up. You're going to have your notebook. You're going to tell everyone. You're going to fucking Instagram story. it. You're going to tag there. And you're going to be I'm finding my path. You're going to feel great. Then almost always around day 15, it's going to feel very repetitive. And you're going to say, this is stupid. Alex is stupid. Farron's stupid. This exercise is stupid. I got the point. I got it. It's fine. And you're going to almost always want to give up around day 15. Only the people who push through. The key to this exercise is stamina consistency. It's only the people who make it to day 28, 29, and day 30, where they can finally start seeing patterns emerge, pointing them in the direction of their path. And that is the 30-day challenge. And it's something you can start doing today. This is now homework for everyone that works at Fahrenheit <laughs> <laughs> or anybody who wants to join us in this 30-day challenge. One of the things that is so interesting about these conversations, and obviously you know Musa, who I've had on the podcast before, Musa and I had a conversation around like brand strategy and how does brand strategy start to be relevant and useful as a tool in your life? Defining your mission, your vision, your values, which inherently is something that I recognize I was doing for brands, but never doing for myself. And so I started doing it for myself, which is really how the Fahrenheit podcast was born. <laughs> but so many of the messages that we keep uncovering around forging our own path, creating clarity finding success or what the definition of success means for us starts with just writing it down. It starts with like the simple act of taking a moment, making it important, making it intentional and giving it actually just time and space. There's a holiness to it. There's a holiness to it, right? What you're asking us to do here is really to create a ritual. And I think it's just a very interesting idea and place to start. The key is the stamina and the consistency because it's really, the magic comes day like 28, 29, 30. In all of the work you did in uncovering what does success mean and how have these incredible people been successful? How much did failure come up? And how important is failure in being successful? <laughs> in my life every day. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the biggest realizations epiphanies, lessons that came along, you know, this 10-year journey of studying success came from interviewing Quincy Jones. 
And I think the only reason I was able to really learn the lesson is because the interview with Quincy was towards the end of my journey. Mm. And one of the big things that I learned from Quincy is that I remember sitting there on that couch with him after this, you know, three hour conversation that felt like it changed my life. I remember sitting there and realizing that I had spent my entire journey because so much of the of the interview with Quincy was about uh, him telling me all the mistakes he made and lessons he learned. And I remember sitting there with Quincy and having this epiphany that I had spent my entire journey assuming that the opposite of success is failure. Yeah. You know, going back to what just society teaches us, you know, what do they teach us in kindergarten? Opposite of up is down, opposite of success is failure. But it wasn't until that moment that I sat there and I realized that success and failure are not only not opposites, they're just different sides of the same coin because they're both a result of the same thing. They're both a result trying. So the opposite of success isn't failure, the opposite of success is not trying. And I remember sitting there on that couch and swearing to myself that from that point forward, I would be unattached to success and unattached to failure and so be committed to trying and growing. And that changed my life forever. And something that to this day, it's been years since that moment, that it's sort of like using shampoo. You sort of wash and repeat every day. What an amazing visual, even for a minute to just think through, which is like success and failure are the same thing. So what if we just remove our commitment or our radical dedication, by the way, that we as a society have to these two ideas, and instead we just focus on trying? One of our values at Fahrenheit, and the team definitely makes fun of me because I use all these sports metaphors, and yet I don't watch sports, so they're never really right. <laughs> We're the same. Yeah, I have like, so many like, like, baseball metaphors in my speeches, and like, I've never played baseball in my life. I haven't played once. No, and sometimes I'm giving like an impassioned speech and I'll use like one sports metaphor to another to another and they're like, all right, like we get the point, coach. Like, but one of the five yard line people, don't fumble it. Farron, have you ever thrown a football in your life? Oh, and I'm totally like oscillating between like soccer, baseball, basketball, you know. But one of the values at Fahrenheit is this idea of playing to win. Playing to win is not actually about playing to win the game. It's about playing to try your best. It's about every member of the team showing up with an energy and a passion and a commitment really to each other. Like in sports, if one of the athletes, well, you know, we're not going to go into any team, but if one of the athletes has a broken foot or a sprained ankle, they have to communicate with their team. They have to get off of the court. They have to let someone else come in and stand in for them. You have to be a team with the ultimate goal of showing up and doing your best. And I always say this, we have a great story actually recently. We don't pitch often at Fahrenheit. Most of what we do is word of mouth and we just end up connecting with founders and we say, let's ride. But recently we were put up for an opportunity where we had to pitch. And so we pulled the whole company together. We spent two days working on this pitch. Everyone contributed ideas, creativity, language, everything. And we sent this pitch out. We didn't get the client. I called a team meeting and I showed everybody on the team, the whole company, the final pitch that we had shared. And I walked them through it and everyone is like, we crushed it. It's amazing. I'm so proud of us. Like there's cheers. And then I was like, we didn't get the job, but who cares? Because we did such good work. I am so proud of us for trying and for going after what honestly was a pipe dream client for an agency of our size. So I think what's so cool is that after this whole journey of meeting the most successful people in the world, what you really uncovered were some fundamental, very basic truths 
About the human experience. About the human experience that all of us, no matter what point of view we approach life from, background, geography, we can all really relate to. I've never thought of it in these terms, but even as you're talking right now, it's almost like there's two arenas. I always thought growing up, there's the arenas of people who succeed and the arena of the people who fail. But the reality is, no, there are two arenas, but that's not how it's divided. There's the arena of the people who succeed and fail. And then there's the arena of people who don't try. Totally. We really just cracked the code on something here. I think I'm going to use that yeah, in another book. Way, it's all good. yours. It's all yours. But what's so interesting is when you were telling the story of Waz in the beginning, I was really resonating with it because... I made a decision a couple of years ago that I really wanted to be happy. Now, defining happiness is like a whole other episode we could do, but I wasn't on a path towards happiness. And I would take Waz's fate any day. The visual even of him with his wife feeling joyful and happy and giving back to being in a position to give back to those employees at Apple. Like for me, that resonated as someone who really might be successful. I'm so grateful for this conversation, Alex, and I'm so inspired by your story. And, and honestly, even just like as a friend, I feel grateful we got this chance to dive in further with this one another. Very fun. So much fun. Can't wait to see what comes next. You'll have to let the Fahrenheit family know when you change the paradigm of how we look at the arenas. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. 